If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helping your writing, then come study with us. You can join our classes here in New York City or attend live online from anywhere in the world. And we have some awesome stuff coming up, including two weekend intensives in March that allow you to get the full content of our Write Your Screenplay class and our TV drama class in just one short weekend. The Write Your Screenplay Weekend Intensive is March 9th and 10th with me. It includes a one-on-one consultation, and it will teach you all the foundations of building a structure for your film. And the TV Drama Workshop is with Pulitzer Prize nominee and former HBO and Showtime executive Steve Moulton. That's March 30th and 31st, and that will teach you the foundations of writing a TV drama, a TV dramedy, a web series, or even a limited series. So if you're interested in TV drama writing, you should definitely check out that class, and you can find information about them both at writeyourscreenplay.com. And by the way, if you want to take them both, we are offering you a special deal that allows you to take both Write Your Screenplay, and the TV Drama Workshop for only $599. So check it out, writeyourscreenplay.com, and here's the podcast. Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies like critics, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we're going to look at movies in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We're going to look at good movies and bad movies, movies that we loved and movies that we hated. For an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as a full transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. This week, we're going to be talking about Roma by Alfonso Cuaron. This is a really extraordinary film that harkens back to a different era of storytelling. It's shot in black and white, despite having a substantial budget. It's entirely in Spanish. And in a way, the whole film is a love poem for Alfonso Cuaron's real-life nanny from his childhood growing up in the Roma section of Mexico City. And in watching the film, it harkens back to a different kind of storytelling, an age where storytelling was slower, where pace was different, where shots were longer, not so many quick cuts, where stories unfolded in a more symbolic kind of way. That kind of structure is quite appropriate for this film because, in a way, it is a nostalgic look back at Alfonso Cuaron's own life. And so we're going to use this podcast to talk about how do you write from real life? How do you look inside of yourself and find those true stories that matter to you? And how do you find the shape that you want to put those stories into in order to communicate not the literal experience, but the emotional experience to an audience? How do you use your real experiences to open up that little piece of your life? What's interesting about writing from real life is that in many ways, these are actually the hardest stories to tell. One of the gifts that we have as screenwriters is the gift of metaphor. So if you're Alfonso Cuaron and you're writing Gravity or Children of Men, you can look at those real life experiences from your real life through the veil of metaphor. You can convince yourself, this isn't really me. By using that technique of metaphor, using the work of fiction in order to tell the truth, sometimes we can allow ourselves to actually see the truth about ourselves and our lives more clearly. And in doing so, also help our audiences to see the truth about themselves and their lives more clearly. 
by abstracting just one degree or two degrees or three degrees or 20 degrees from what actually happened. We allow our subconscious mind to start to give us the clues that we haven't yet processed in our conscious mind, to start to actually see the truth of our experiences in a way that our conscious mind shields us from in our daily life. If you've ever been to therapy, you know what this is like, right? You come and you think that you're in therapy for one reason, and then you start to spend time and you realize that you're actually dealing with something completely different. This is exactly what writing a film is like. Sometimes we start and we think, oh, I've got a great commercial hook. Oh, I finally got an easy project that will sell easily. And then over the course of a year or six months or three months or five years or however long it takes you to write it, you start to realize, oh my God, I'm actually doing something very different. I'm actually telling a story about my mother. I'm actually telling a story about my brother. I'm actually telling a story about this thing that happened to me that I can't make sense of. But that veil of fiction, the way that we can convince ourselves that we're using fiction, the way that we convince ourselves that this character isn't really me, gives us a level of safety within which to play so that we don't have to deal with the entirety of our past until we've done the work to get ready for it. When you start to tell a movie like Roma, things start to change. It's just a fact of life that we are actually the one person that we can't see clearly. This is a physical fact. When you go around in the world, you're looking at other people all the time, but it's only when you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror that you actually see what you look like. In fact, most of us, myself included, have a vision of ourselves that is from a different era of time. I still think that I'm like 33 years old. We actually have a vision of ourselves when we see ourselves that doesn't actually always match up with the person who's in the mirror right now because we physically actually don't see ourselves well. But also emotionally, we don't see ourselves well. It's extremely hard to look at ourselves. If we could, we would all be capable of change instantaneously. We would all be capable of being exactly the people we want to be all the time. But there are layers of ego and self-protection and fear and confusion and conflicting messages and concerns, thought processes, and belief systems that we have to navigate through to actually look at ourselves clearly. And in order to survive the things that happen, we put walls around our real self that get in the way of us actually seeing ourselves clearly. So using fiction as a tool is one of the ways that we as writers get to look at ourselves and heal our wounds or express the beautiful parts of ourselves and to bypass those filters. But when we start to tell the story that's the true story, things get a lot harder because now we no longer have the veil. Now we have to start to look at ourselves clearly. That's the hardest thing to do. One of the places that you want to start, as Alfonso Cuaron starts, is by abstracting to some degree, even within the real story, by giving that story some level of fiction. One of the techniques that he uses is simply to change the name of the main character. His real nanny's name was Liboria. She's actually still alive. He changes her name to Cleo. Simply by making that tiny little change, he gives himself just a little bit more abstraction, just one degree further from the true life story. A trick you can use if the main character is you, and you can see in this piece, Alfonso Cuaron is a character in this piece, but he's actually even more tangential than the main character. He's actually off to the side, barely a featured character in the piece. In fact, you don't even know which little boy he is. But he is a character hanging out there. Eugene O'Neill and his great play about his family, Long Day's Journey into Night, which was also made into a really beautiful film. He is finally deciding to confront his father's narcissism and his mother's addiction. 
and he dramatizes the story of all the people in his family, except for himself. In Long Day's Journey Tonight, he decides that Jean was the child who died. He actually writes himself out of his own life story in order to be able to tell the story more truthfully. Look, we're all our own protagonist, right? We all see ourselves as the protagonists of our own story. But he takes that character and he slides him just a little bit to the sidelines. He looks at that character just a little bit from an angle, instead focusing the camera on the person who he both loved and underappreciated during this period of his life. So if you are ever writing a movie where you are the main character, one of the tricks you can use is to give that character some element that's very different from you. To find some difference between that character and the way you perceive yourself. Something that gives you that one degree of abstraction. And you might think that finding that one thing that's different might actually hide the truth from you, but actually the opposite is true. By finding that one thing that's just a little bit different, that's just a little bit more abstract, what happens is it actually allows your subconscious mind to start to play and to start to feed you that truth. So in this case, he changes his main character's name. That's one little trick. He writes himself off into the sidelines. But he also uses another technique of amplification. What Quaron is doing is hitting his symbology, not with a little ball-peen hammer, but with a giant anvil. He is hammering, hammering, hammering on his symbology. And we don't get to see this a lot in movies anymore. But in Roma, it's unbelievably effective. For example, we have the symbology of that car that can't quite fit into the driveway. And then we have the expansion of that symbol when the mother purposely drives it between those two trucks and destroys the car. And then we have the next step of that when she slams it drunk into the driveway. And then we have the next step of that when she replaces it with a new smaller car. And we start to realize as we play with that that the car is a symbol for the father, the father who abandoned her and her anger towards that father. And the replacement of the big car with the smaller car is the beginning of the movement back into herself, into building the life that she wants to build rather than trying to fit into somebody else's walls. Who knows if that car even existed or if that driveway even existed. In the film, the car is a metaphor. It's a symbol. In the same way that when Cleo tells her boyfriend, Fermin, her little secret, and I won't ruin it for you, in the movie theater, and we watch the plane crashing on the screen, this is a symbol. This is a symbol for the way it feels inside of that character. And so what Quaron is doing is he's using these symbols. He's allowing himself to play not in this realistic world, but in a heightened naturalistic world in order to get closer to the truth of what this feels like. He's taking the experience of his true life story and he's translating it into art. There's another level, though, to what's happening here. Because the intention behind Roma actually grows out of the kind of perspective that we can only develop over time. Growing up in this little section of Mexico City, Alfonso Cuaron was sheltered from what was really happening around him. He was sheltered even from the Corpus Christi Massacre, which we end up seeing towards the end of this film. He was not aware of the political events. He was not aware of the real life of his nanny. His nanny was simply someone there in the background taking care of things for him, barely noticed. And so what Caron decides to do is to create that same feeling in the way that he shoots the film. 
So a lot of people have talked about Roma and talked about Quaron's shots, these incredibly wide shots. A lot of people have talked about this idea as if it was a stylistic idea. But it's not a stylistic idea, it's a thematic idea. It grows out of realizing something about yourself. And you can see that it's actually another metaphor in the film, that actually the way the film is shot is a metaphor in the film. It's a metaphor for this wide world going around, within which the main character is actually not a part, is not included. And if you think of almost every shot of this film, what we see is an extraordinary landscape where wild, fascinating things are happening. We're watching parties, and we're watching games, and we're watching excitement. In fact, we're watching a primer in how to build establishing shots. Because every establishing shot in this movie is so specific, so cool, so jaw-droppingly visual. And of course, this is what we want to do in every shot in our film, right? We never want to throw away an establishing shot. We want every shot in our film to have something beautiful happening in it. More importantly, it's growing out of this theme that here's all this glitz and glamour that distract us. And then somewhere within that are the people that are actually making all that stuff happen, that are actually keeping the whole darn thing moving, even though most people are not even aware that they're there. The way that Cleo's relationship with the family is characterized in this film is actually quite fascinating and delicate. This is not an exploitative family. In fact, they love her. Even the doctor, Antonio, who is terrible to his wife and to his children in the film, there's a moment of genuine tenderness between him and Cleo late in the film where you realize that he loves her too. It's not that they don't love Cleo. It's that they're not aware of her, just like we as a society are still not aware of so many of the people who actually make our society work, so many of the people who live in the sidelines. And in a way, you could think of Roma like a beautiful independent version of Forrest Gump. Kind of like Forrest Gump, she's floating through a fascinating political period, mostly unaware of the things that are happening to her. In the same way that the family is floating through this period, barely aware of these monumental political happenings until those happenings smack them in the face, Cleo, who is too busy with all the tasks that she must accomplish just to do her job, all the pressure of taking care of everything for this wealthy family, to even recognize the socio-political context that she's moving through. You're watching a character who is not the traditional, I want this and I'm going for it character, but instead a character who's rooted in every scene in some kind of action related to her work, who has a couple of big choices that she makes in relation to her love story, in relation to the family she works for, in relation to her unborn child. So we have a character who's going through a huge journey, but not in the traditional way. Central to this idea is a fabulous line that Sophia, the mother, utters to Cleo in a drunken fit. No matter what they tell you, women, we are always alone. What we're really watching here is the story of two women in two different societies who have the exact same problem. Two women moving through a fascinating political period. One woman who is living in the wealthy stratosphere of society and another woman who is living in the lower classes of society, but both of them moving through the same period and dealing with the same problem of trying to take care of a family in a world where you are entirely alone. 
one of my great mentors was a guy named Bill Cook. Bill Cook was not a screenwriting teacher. He was actually a poetry professor at Dartmouth College. And Bill Cook always said in a poem, form equals function. That the form that your poem takes relates to the function of what the poem is doing and saying. That these two things are inextricably linked. And in a lot of ways, screenwriting is a lot like poetry. Every line matters. In poetry, it matters because poems are so compressed. But in screenwriting, it matters in the same way. Because screenplays are so compressed. Because everything is moving the story forward. But also because in screenwriting, every line, every word matters because every line, every word is expensive. Every line costs so much money to shoot. So like poets, we really have to understand and savor the value of everything we put into our script. Every line, every visual image. We have to get the most out of it. There's not such a thing as a throwaway moment. So an example of this that you may remember, there is a symbolic theme that runs through this of the man in space. And we see this theme happen visually in a bunch of different ways. One of the first times it happens is a scene that otherwise could have just been a throwaway scene. There's a big party out in the country that later turns really mad when a fire breaks out. But there's a big party out in the country. And all the wealthy are there and all their servants are there. And there's one of these big establishing shots that we've come to appreciate in this film, right? One of these shots that starts with this extraordinary landscape and on these fabulous wealthy people. And we see a little boy wandering through the wilderness and he is wearing a really cool spaceman astronaut outfit and we follow him and he takes us to the rest of the party and then eventually that takes us to where the camera always settles back to Cleo back to these girls that all the people around them are not even noticing in many movies this would just be a throwaway shot it would just be like exterior forest night a bunch of people partying we find Cleo but instead Quaron finds something special and beautiful about that moment he finds that little boy in, this, in the astronaut outfit. Later, when Cleo goes to the slums to try to find Fermin, her ex-boyfriend who's abandoned her, we see another little boy. But this time, it's just a boy with a bucket on his head, playing the same spaceman game in a different class. You can see what Quarren is doing. He's actually going back to the same well, having come up with that one cool image and not thrown it away. He now gets to build another cool image and not throw it away. And if you watch the movie, you see that he keeps going back to that theme in different ways. And that eventually that theme starts to add up to something. That idea that in a way all the characters in this movie are like men in space. They are all, as Sophia says, always alone. They are all rich and poor, making their way in a vast universe that seems barely aware of them. The children are isolated from their father who has drifted off and abandoned them. The mother is isolated from her husband. Cleo is isolated from her lover, from the family that she takes care of. And yet, this is also a loving portrait of a society. This is also a portrait of a woman who would do anything for these children, who loves these children. This is a movie about a love that crosses those cultural and economic lines. And all of that grows from one little image. Not the planned image that you can come up with as you're thinking about the structure of the film. The image that comes to you from the, your subconscious as you're starting to play with the symbology, as you're starting to go, how do I make this establishing shot cool? How do I play with the form of the movie? What's the big glossy picture under which the real story is happening? And just to take that one step further, 
One of the mistakes that we often make in historical movies, whether they're stories of our own life or stories of a historical period, is that we focus the camera in the wrong place. We focus our camera in the wrong place because we think our job is to tell the history of the event. But that's not our job. We are not researchers and documentarians, even though research and documentary is part of what we do. Our job as screenwriters is to convey the emotional experience of the event. A lesser screenwriter would have thought that he had to establish the structure by which they established the Corpus Christi Massacre. They would have to think about how do we lay in the politics and how does this build over time and what were the economic and social and political causes and how does this all weave through the character. We would start to think that the research was the story, that we had to capture that historical period. But the research is not the story. The story grows out of the theme. The story grows out of that question about myself. How did I not see this woman for who she was? How did I not see the socioeconomic and political events that were happening all around me as I grew up? How was I so oblivious, so in space, while all these crazy things were happening around me? How were we all so entirely alone during this period? So what Quaron does is he doesn't bother to look at the politics at all. Yes, we get little snippets. We understand during that party in the forest that the guy throwing the party is not that well loved by the villagers, that maybe they killed his dog. We get to see the fire break out, and then we get that one little vignette of him and his wife drinking their wine while everybody else fights the fire. But we don't know what he did. We know there was some kind of thing about land. We don't know how he relates to this massacre. We don't know how Fermin gets involved. We don't know why the massacre happened or exactly what they're protesting about. Rather, we're watching the movie through the eyes of this family knowing about as much as they know, drifting through the space of a period in time and letting the experience wash over us, moving through those vast, beautiful, glitzy shots that we've gotten to know Quaron for, and then drifting back to this tiny little portrait of this woman that he loves. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For a complete transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast.